This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. From the streets of Brazil to the corridors of power in Miraflores, we'll have twin themes this week. We'll analyze the biggest protest movement in a generation in Brazil. And also, we'll muse about whether Caracas and Washington are about to finally make up. But first, Kurt Devine is here with our weekly news roundup of issues affecting Latin America. The U.S. Senate passed a landmark immigration bill that would provide a path to citizenship for more than 11 million undocumented immigrants. The bill outlines plans to invest $46 billion in a new visa system and increased border security. Senator Marco Rubio, whose parents emigrated from Cuba, commented on the passing of the bill. Here in America, generations of unfulfilled dreams will finally come to pass. And that's why I support this reform. Not just because I believe in immigrants, but because I believe in America even more. The Senate voted 68 to 32 on the bill, which now faces heated opposition in the House of Representatives. The House will move forward on immigration reform after July 4th. A Peruvian woman accused a United Nations official of trafficking her into the U.S. for involuntary servitude. She is suing the U.N. official in U.S. federal court. She says the U.N. official, also from Peru, gave her a contract in Lima to work as a housekeeper. After arriving in New Jersey with a special visa, the woman says she was forced to work more than 16 hours a day, seven days a week, for little compensation. A panel at the Organization of American States discussed this week the growing plight of labor trafficking throughout the Americas. The U.S. State Department's human trafficking ambassador, Louis C. DeBaca, described forced labor trafficking in the region. It's the men found off the coast of Costa Rica, trapped in a fishing boat, treated brutally and forced to work day and night for months on end. It's a young girl or a young boy held in a brothel in Brazil, and it happens in every capital in the Americas. The International Labor Organization estimates that more than 50 million people work as domestic servants worldwide, many in slave-like conditions. Ecuador dropped a trade pact with the United States because Ecuador's foreign minister said the country would not submit to diplomatic blackmail. The trade pact is worth at least $1 billion a year to Ecuador and at least 40,000 jobs. Ecuador has discussed giving sanctuary to Edward Snowden, the National Security Agency leaker who revealed the NSA's spying program in the U.S. Snowden remains in an air transit lounge in Moscow as he works with the WikiLeaks organization to find a country that will shelter him from U.S. charges of espionage. Snowden has applied to Ecuador for asylum. We'll have more discussion on the Snowden case later in this program. Members of the Falkland Islands Legislative Assembly brought their public outreach campaign to Washington, D.C. this week. This comes after their statement at the United Nations in New York. The islanders want the U.N. to recognize their rights to self-determination after a referendum this year. In that referendum, islanders overwhelmingly reaffirmed their status as a British overseas territory. Argentina also claims the islands, which it calls the Malvinas. Mike Summers was one of the legislative leaders who expressed frustration with the process at the U.N. The U.N. is a funny old organization, as I I think you know, and and I I don't think... um 
I don't think the Falklands dispute is, is ever going to be resolved in or by by the UN, which is which is a members' club basically for you know for, for its members. The United Kingdom also represented its views and the views of the islanders at the UN meetings. Protesters again clashed with police throughout Brazil this week. About 5,000 demonstrators marched outside of Castelao Stadium in the city of Fortaleza ahead of the Confederation's Cup, a major soccer match. Police responded with tear gas against a minority of demonstrators who became violent. We'll have more on the Brazilian protests in a moment. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. Thanks, Kurt. As we just heard, Brazil's street protests have carried on into another week. Some cities have seen a month of such protests, which began when authorities hiked bus fares in some regions. But the protests have moved beyond that initial issue to encompass discontent with corruption, police brutality, and inequities in government spending. Many disagree with the billions being invested to prepare Brazil for next year's World Cup football championship, or as we say in the U.S., the World Cup soccer championship. And protesters are also upset about expenditures for the 2016 Summer Olympics. We turn to Professor Matt Taylor of American University for answers. Taylor is the co-editor of the book, Corruption and Democracy in Brazil. Here are excerpts from our pre-recorded discussion. It started, of course, with a protest over bus fares. Uh, Certainly the police response, a very heavy-handed response, didn't help matters, and so the biggest turnout came out uh, a week ago, Monday, on, uh, in, in response to the police violence. Um, since then, though, I think that the protests have sort of morphed around an inchoate dissatisfaction with democracy and with the way that representative institutions are working in Brazil. And the, the bus fares still t- seem to be on the table, but I think when you, when you look at it, when you, when you tell people these are uh, riots and protests that started over a nine-cent bus fare increase, it sounds like that's more like the match that lit the explosion. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, the bus fares don't really explain the anger, uh, the disgust, the, the, the revulsion with politicians. Um, and the, the bus fare uh, increase was rescinded. So uh, what we have now has nothing to do with the bus fares anymore. Um, and so this is very interesting. The, the other interesting pers- uh, you know, uh, point about the, the protests is that they have been apolitical. And this is in contrast to past protests, uh, for example, the, the move for direct elections in the 1980s or the protests against Kohler. Uh, political parties not only are not leading this, but they've been actively discouraged from participating. What I've heard is that politicians are now um, beating their breasts with mea culpas about um, where we went wrong, especially the Workers' Party, which is the the ruling party these days in Brazil, um, that the Workers' Party is maybe no longer the party of the workers, no longer connected to the youth and and the left in the way that it was when uh, President Lula da Silva started um, to, to make it more of a national party? Certainly, uh, the social connection is, is less obvious these days. It's still a, a very popular party. Obviously, Dilma uh, Rousseff, the current president, was elected um, and uh, has very strong support. But the, there's no doubt that the corruption scandal, the Mensa Loan scandal of 2005, 
had an important effect on the way that the party is viewed, and the sort of grassroots support for the PT, the Workers' Party, is no longer as strong as it was uh, at, at Lula's inauguration. So uh, you're absolutely right that the party has changed, and I think that the, the protests have sort of cast a pox on all houses, on all political parties. Uh, and uh, so politicians have had a hard time getting out in front of this, uh, this movement. It's more than just people protesting, as we said, about bus fares. Who, who are we seeing out in the streets? It's, it's a different crowd than, than just students, is it? Well, um, one thing that hasn't gotten much coverage in the press, but in speaking with uh, Brazilians on the ground, uh, you hear that there are, of course, the massive protests, the 250,000 large protests, for example, that hit Sao Paulo. There have been larger protests, but there have also been uh, smaller and, and less focused protests uh, in neighborhoods. I, I think we heard last week that, that there were protests in more than 100 municipalities across Brazil. Fewer protests this week. We, we've seen President Rousseff react to these protests. How has she reacted, and, and why has that reaction not stopped people from coming out in the streets? Right. Well, um, sh- there there are so many different demands here, and different groups have tried to harness this in different directions. On Friday, uh, Dilma Rousseff came out with uh, a package against corruption, a proposal against corruption. Uh, she stated in her speech after 10 days of protests that um, she had heard the protesters and that she condemned violence. Um, But it wasn't a speech that really moved the public. And so I think that explains why there were continued protests over the weekend. Um, Yesterday, before holding a meeting with all of the state governors and all of the capital city's mayors, uh, Dilma Rousseff came forward with a very large package of five proposals to to address some of the demands. And so she called it a five-pacts. And these five PACs um, uh, cover everything from fiscal responsibility to corruption, uh, public education, transportation, and health. Um, Whether or not this will be effective, it's unclear, but it certainly changed the conversation. Uh, The conversation, I think, uh, from yesterday to today has, has, has switched over away from protest to how do we make this happen? How do we make these PACs uh, effective? And is it possible to make them effective? Do people really believe, though, that she's going to be able to deliver on on this? She ran on an anti-corruption platform. She's had problems getting rid of corruption in her administration. And we see people out in the street in these large numbers um, really campaigning, as you said, against politicians and against corruption. You were here on this program more than a year ago talking specifically about the problems that Brazil has with corruption and it's obvious from this that that problem has not been solved. That's absolutely right. And uh, Dilma is in a hard place. She came into office with the, the culprits in the Mensalão, members of her own party, the PT. Um, they, were, they were being judged in the high court, the Supreme Federal Tribunal. The Supreme Federal Tribunal held them guilty. And yet they have not yet gone to jail, partly because they've been able to file appeals under the very sort of Byzantine legal rules that govern uh, the Brazilian judicial system. So many of these people are, are on the streets, and, and um, this is, of course, a source of uh, disgust among the protesters. Um, 
That being said, she has uh, proposed many changes that can be done by decree. For example, expanding the Freedom of Information Act, creating a national um, uh, list of, of corrupt companies. Um, but the, the most controversial element in her speech yesterday was a call for a plebiscite that would um, uh, approve or not a constitutional assembly to fight corruption, to reform the political system and fight corruption. And that uh, is controversial among judicial scholars, uh, partly because there's some concern that a plebiscite to hold a constituent assembly uh, would enable um, reform of the entire constitution as opposed to only political reform. Is President Rousseff fighting for her political life here. She's she's up for re-election next year. Um, she has engaged the protesters in ways and met with them. Uh, she has not um, rejected them in ways that, that presidents in other parts of the world are, are doing to their street protesters right now. I'm thinking more like Turkey. So she has, she has come up with these ideas, these packages, um, but we haven't seen results yet. Do we just need to give her more time? Yeah, I mean, um, there, make make no mistake about it. She's still a very popular president. She's got approval ratings that would make uh, Obama um, jealous, I think, uh, over 50% approval. Um, and she's, of course, responding to disappointment with politicians of all stripes. And so in that sense, uh, she benefits from having the bully pulpit. She can come forward with all of these proactive proposals in a way that the governors and mayors find it difficult to do. Um, and, you know, I would say one more thing, going back to one of your earlier questions. The people who are out on the streets may not be Dilma's core base of support. Um, and as you know, um, the PT has benefited from the Bolsa Familia, and the Bolsa Familia has benefited the new lower middle class. Um, polls of the protesters suggest that the people who are on the street right now are upper middle class or, you know, the old middle class. And so these are university-educated, urban, uh, young. Um, this is the, the middle class that has not benefited in the same way as the wealthy or as the poor from the, the Workers' Party's years in office. Let me make sure that we're, we're using the same terminology. We have talked about the Bolsa Familia on this program before, and more or less, that's the Brazilian welfare program, is it not? Well, this is the, the welfare for the poorest of the poor, the indigent um, offering them a conditional cash transfer program in exchange for uh, their sending their kids to school, getting vaccinated, and so forth. And along those lines, this is where some of the protesters have, have, have want to hold the government, not just the federal government, but, but their municipalities and state governments accountable to the idea that Brazil is spending a lot of money on, on the sports contests that are, that are coming. The uh, FIFA World Cup, the Olympics are both on the agenda for Brazil in the next two years. And there's a lot of infrastructure I'm, I'm told more than $14 billion of investment in these infrastructure projects. And people want to know, why is that money not going to education? Why is it not going to things that people in the middle and lower classes would actually see? Absolutely. And, I, you know, one of the most uh, popular placards in some of these demonstrations has been, we want FIFA quality 
healthcare. We want FIFA quality educational systems. And so, uh, although Brazilians are very, uh, uh, they're fans, they're aficionados of, of soccer and futebol, uh, nonetheless, they think that there may have been a misallocation here, that things are not being, the priorities of the political system have not been um, perhaps the best choices for the long term. So even in Brazil, it's possible to spend too much money on football. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Thank you, Professor Matt Taylor of American University, our guest today on Latin Plus. Thank you. A man is found guilty of trafficking Brazilian women to the UK to make them work as prostitutes. The head of an international trafficking network is jailed in Romania, and three people are sent to prison in America for operating a Mexican baby smuggling ring. Human traffickers trick and deceive their victims, but by joining forces we can bring these criminals to justice. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking, ungift.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This week we return to the tense relationship between the United States and Venezuela. Earlier this month, U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry met with his Venezuelan counterpart in Guatemala during the meeting of the Organization of American States, the OAS. The countries announced intentions to mend fences and exchange ambassadors again. For the latest on this diplomatic outreach and other political developments, we turn to Professor David Smildy of the University of Georgia. Smildy is the editor of the Washington office on Latin America's Venezuela blog. He joined us via Skype from Caracas. The, the meeting itself, I thought, was really quite amazing in, in that it was quite unexpected. It came on the heels of uh, Enrique Capriles' visit to Colombia to meet with Juan Manuel Santos. Uh, the, the Maduro government turned around and, and sought out this meeting uh, with, with John Kerry, and the, the Obama government accepted that. They had a 45-minute talk and uh, agreed to start working towards uh, reestablishing ambassadors. And so I thought that was really, really just an incredible step. I think just having done that for both sides uh, amounts to, there, there's a lot of sunken political costs in having a meeting like that. No, uh, uh, oh, the Obama administration immediately got criticized by the Washington Post. And within uh, Venezuela, also on the left part of the spectrum, uh, you know, I'm sure there were some people that didn't think that that was all that great as well. And so there was some real cost to that. That made me, right from the beginning, to be quite optimistic that this was actually going to happen. And, you know, it's proceeded forward. It's actually weathered a couple of challenges in the sense that, uh, for example, the, uh, uh, the head of the opposition coalition, the MOOD, actually went to Washington and met with people in the State Department, met with uh, Roberto Jacobson. Um, and uh, also the issue with Snowden uh, this week and Snowden's potential asylum in Venezuela, Ecuador. No, it seemed like Venezuela backed off a little bit from that, or at least Snowden backed off from the idea of coming to Venezuela. And that was another threat. And so it's still hanging in there, but it's, uh, you know, it's tenuous, of course. Uh, there's two countries with very different ideologies, and the U.S. has a very big role in Chavismo's rhetoric about the world. And so, uh, you know, until it happens, I wouldn't bet on it. But, you know, I think both sides are making a solid and sincere effort uh, to, to reestablish relations. I, I don't know if we'll t have time to, to really fully discuss Edward Snowden and, and Venezuelan diplomats and how they may or may not have been helping him in, in Moscow. But, but I'm, I want to get back to this question of, uh, of relations between Washington and Caracas because I, I think it's very important uh, for the hemisphere. And this issue of recognizing 
the government of Nicolas Maduro that, that Washington continues to be one of the few holdouts when it comes to recognizing his election win from the spring. Is that true? And, and if so, uh, how can they get past that particular hurdle? Yeah, what's interesting about it is that, indeed, the U.S. is the one country in the region that has not recognized Maduro's uh, election. That doesn't mean it hasn't recognized the Maduro government, but it hasn't recognized that election uh, like most other countries have. And that, of course, is a big hurdle, and that's why few people thought that Venezuela would have sought out improved relations with the United States with that there. No? It's, it's, I think it's a real sort of affront to Venezuela. I think it was the Capriles meeting with Santos that suddenly got Venezuela very interested in sort of triangulating and, and reestablishing relations with the United States. Curiously, uh, nothing has been said about that. No, there was no, for, for example, you know, one of the things that Venezuela did the day of that meeting is they released the, this uh, U.S. filmmaker named Timothy Tracy. No, that was the, also that was sort of coming between the two, the two countries. But there were no statements on this that now the U.S. has agreed to recognize the election. No, the the audit is over, and the U.S. has said that had said that you know once it's over, well then we'll recognize it. Do we think that you know this should run its course first before we recognize or decide not to recognize? Um, but I think that the idea has just been sort of just to let it die out and just not mention it any further because I think, you know, for the Obama administration to come out, not only meet with Elias Hawa, the Venezuela's foreign minister, but then come out and say, okay, well, we do recognize the election, I think would just have drawn more attention to what is uh, politically a difficult situation for the Obama uh, administration in Washington. And so I'm assuming that they're probably just not going to, uh, you know, take up the issue anymore and just kind of at some point take it off the White House webpage and, and uh, just not mention it again. We should point out that that vote audit again showed that Nicolas Maduro was the winner of, of this spring snap election. And, and there have been some news this week that, that your blog is, is, is broken about the, um, the opposition, it, not directly tied to Enrique Capriles, the, um, the governor who has been the leader of the opposition, but some discussion about how um, tapes are now revealing that the, the opposition indeed has been trying to destabilize the government in Venezuela as the Maduro government has, has been accusing for the past several months. Yeah, indeed. Just yesterday, the, uh, the Maduro government, a couple of officials, released a tape of Maria Corina Machao, who is sort of a leading opposition deputy in the National Assembly and is one of the sort of is one of the radicals. A tape of her having a private conversation with a Venezuelan historian named Herman Carrera Damas. And she says many things in that tape, but one of the things that she says is that uh, Ramon Guillermo Aveledo went to the State Department and he did indeed go to the State Department last week, we know that was in the press, that was public, that he went and he told the State Department that the only thing that's going to resolve this is if there's a crisis that leads to a coup or a self-coup. And so that, you know, that type of thing just confirms everything that the Maduro government has been saying about the opposition and really the stereotypes that Chavismo has had about the opposition forever, which is that they are a conspiring elite that seeks international intervention because they can't defeat Chavismo at the polls. 
And so, uh, you know, that's just out. This is news that's just being made today. And so we'll see what the fallout is of that, if it has any impact on the opposition. Those of us who are watchers of things going on in Caracas know that sometimes you have to look for the subtle clues and hints. And this week in Washington, the Venezuelan embassy was um, a, a bit obvious about touting the ties, the long ties between John Kerry and Nicolas Maduro and, and talking about their ties as, as diplomats and, and members of, of the various uh, national legislatures in, in, in their countries um, going back more than a dozen years. Um, does this also then signal uh, again that Caracas really is really wants to do business with Washington again? Yeah, yeah, I think those things do signal that, you know, and, and there are contacts, you know, Maduro, Kerry apparently met Maduro about 10 years ago when, when they both participated in the, in the Boston group, which was a group that was trying to uh, uh, improve U.S.-Venezuelan relations and was headed up by Calixto Ortega, who is now the charge of affairs in the Venezuelan embassy. And so there's those signs, there's many different signs and many different statements that talk about this desire to reestablish relations. And I think Venezuela very clearly means business and wants this, uh, I think, particularly because they sense that Capriles' strategy is an international strategy and the first leg of that they saw in Colombia. And so reestablishing relations with Washington is a way of sort of cutting, cutting off that strategy. Also, you know, Maduro has been confronting very serious economic problems with exchange control and, and shortages. And uh, they, he needs, you know, good relations with the United States, needs U.S. business, needs that relationship to, to work because the U.S. is the one sort of provider of real hard cash for Venezuelan oil. However, having said that, Maduro is a complex figure just like anybody else. And he's got uh, many different elements to his sort of persona. And one of them is his, one of his sort of, really sort of the core long-term ideological commitment of Maduro is anti-imperialism. He was trained in, in Cuba. He very much comes from the left. He was foreign minister for six years. And so that's very much his, his main discourse. And so you can see this. So just at the same time, all these things are happening that you just mentioned. You know, just yesterday... He came out and said, "Oh, you know, if Snowden were, if if Edward Snowden were to ask for asylum here in Venezuela, we would most likely concede it, you know, because we don't want him to be arrested and killed in the United States." You know, he see, went on to say something else like, uh, "You know, that if we don't protect Snowden, no one else will come out to denounce imperialism." You know, these are statements that, of course, many people have made, uh, but. You know, they're, they were a little surprising in the context of Maduro trying to relate, you know, trying to improve relations with the United States. And I think he has a complex position, he has a complex personality. And so, on the one hand, I think pragmatically and politically, he thinks reestablishing relations with the United States is important. On the other hand, ideologically and for his internal politics, you know, his anti-imperialist credentials are very important to him as well. I think at this point, we we don't know what will happen to the NSA leaker. Edward Snowden, as we record this, he's still in Moscow. Um, but are there other things regarding this relationship between the U.S. and Caracas and Venezuela that, that we haven't touched on in this interview? Well, there's the, I have mentioned the relationship with Colombia, the Colombian pre- peace process. No, Venezuela is a very important actor there. And I think that's also, you know, one sort of complicating factor 
with all of this is is that Colombia, you know, um, uh, the U.S. has an interest in peace in Colombia. It also has an interest in Colombia being its main ally. So Venezuela being involved in this peace process, of course, is, is somewhat you know, uh, complex situation for the United States, that would definitely be another challenge, uh, you know, uh, that, that could be coming up in the next couple of weeks for this relationship. We'll be watching for the signs. Thank you very much, Professor David Smaldi, the University of Georgia, and the editor of the Washington Office on Latin America's blog on Venezuela. He's visiting with us today via Skype from Caracas. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, Hente Flow, and Musica Q. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to respond to this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is sponsored by the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. The program is produced at the university's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV with additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs> <laughs>